Hey friends, we've got an exciting program that I want to share with you, our upcoming Climate Leadership Accelerator Into the Arena. It's designed for those of us who feel compelled to influence climate leadership in our organisations and communities. In the program, you'll deepen your understanding of the systems operating within the climate crisis and connect with an incredible network of leaders, challenge your own assumptions and develop a hopeful framework for action. So head to smallgiants.com.au slash into the arena to learn more and apply. Stone and Wood Brewing believes that beer can be a force for good. For them, being good means taking care of their community, their team, and the earth that sustains us. It's why they work hard to maintain their B Corp status, tackle energy use and waste via the Green Feet program, and why they established their non-for-profit arm, the Ingrained Foundation. Stone and Wood working hard to create beer that you can feel good about. Hello, this is Nathan on the Dumbo Feather podcast, where we share conversations and stories of people carving out a more hopeful future. We have something slightly different for you in this week's episode. A few months ago, I had the very fun and moving task of facilitating our first four-week Storytelling for Change course at Small Giants Academy. Each Wednesday, 15 or so participants would gather in the Zoom room to talk about how stories shape our individual lives and the cultures we are part of. We learned skills for finessing our stories and were joined by some of our much-loved Dumbo Feather storytellers, including Padre Gatuama, Lydia Fairhall and Danielle Caruana. Across the course, participants were tasked with composing a story of their own, any story from their life, which they then shared in the final week. We were all blown away by each other's heartfelt, creative and hilarious sharings, and felt the magic of being intertwined in one another's stories. In this episode of the podcast, three participants from the course have very generously recorded their stories for you all to hear. First up, we have Lizzie Hamer reading The Car Ride followed by Hermione Stewart, reading Love Survives, and finally Ben Duke with The Blue Lagoon. I hope you all enjoy these as much as we did. Hi, my name is Lizzie Hamer. I'm a creative who loves to explore the edges of conversations, and I'm always story hunting. This is the tale of a car journey that changed my life. Not in a big travel across the country kind of way, not an epic road trip or a night drive, but in the smallest moment of shared laughter. There was a uniform young lesbians adopted in my town. It was a cross between commando cargo pants and a flamboyant farmer's night out. Farmy. Farmy chic, I once heard it nicknamed. I guess it gave a sense of safety, almost a cloak of invisibility. Well, that's what I hoped for. The brutal, humiliating name-calling on the bus was often more than I could bear. The bus was the lifeline from my village to the metropolitan bright lights of the city. Slightly weathered lights in a worn-out city in the middle of England. But, all the same... This was the place where there were more of us. You know, the farmy type. 
The bus was a double-decker that drove so slowly, as if to lengthen my sentence. It was always hot and sweaty and full of teenagers. The stench of testosterone often gave a sense of the trouble to come. It was rarely physical, just downright humiliating. They threw words at me like weapons, and they weren't aiming to injure. It wasn't the kids I hated. It was the adults, the ones who did absolutely nothing to help me. That I hated. I was only 14, and I was going to war against the bus ride. I mean, it was often a whole day's procrastination. I told my mother I was gay earlier that year. The tears, the sobbing and the fears of a harder life had been harrowing. We were close, but it felt like she'd been ripped away from me in just one sentence. I mean, mum wanted only the best for me, and in her world, this wasn't it. We didn't discuss it. We moved to an English society's management of pain. Long silences. Deafening silence. I couldn't turn back. I knew myself, right? Well, I couldn't turn back. I just met her. A woman with an old soul who loved life. She had a glint in her eye as if life was just about to get exciting. Her voice was soft and slightly raspy, like a jazz singer who'd finished a big number. And she gave me a feeling of being right, that it would be all right, that this couldn't be wrong. She made me brave. So, adorning my farmy gear, it was the first time I'd been invited to meet her parents and stay the night. I mean, in their world, it was just a phase, so no harm done. Mum begrudgingly agreed to drive over and pick me up the next morning. No bus. The evening was incredible. I mean, her parents were lovely, but the after hours was breathtaking. We talked all night. It was a connection I didn't know I could have. The next morning, I strolled out of the house 10 feet tall beaming, my mind replaying the night, remembering every last moment. Mum pulled up and honked. The noise punctured my bliss, like a punch to the guts. I hurriedly got in the car. Mum was late. She pulled off without a second thought. I screamed, wait, wait, I haven't got my strap on. The brakes are applied at the force of wildebeest running from the truth. My face turns bright red. I'm now the colour of beetroots that my farmy outfit should have been harvesting. I can't breathe. My chest is so tight. My arms have stopped working in shock as I try to gesture. A whisper comes from my lips. My strap, my belt, my seatbelt. I haven't got my seatbelt on. My mouth is dry, the thumping of my heart in my ears. I'm ready for weaponized words. The air in the car is swallowed by silence. Then suddenly, my mum 
roars with laughter. Mum is now howling, big intakes, loud claps. The car is brimming. In that one moment, we broke the silence. The laughter that day cut through the shame and the pain surrounding something neither of us knew enough about. (laughs) Mum and I haven't stopped laughing and talking since that car ride. And even riding the bus isn't as bad. Love Survives by Hermione Stewart An interaction I had with a man named Jeff in a restaurant in Melbourne ignited within me a feeling of such goodness that I agreed to take a drive to Sorrento with him a few days later. I think the month was June. The weather was cold. However, inside the car, I felt warm. Not because of the heating system, but because something significant was taking place. I could feel it coursing through my veins. I watched Jeff through my sunglasses in the passenger seat, in that way one does when you don't want to be seen looking at the person. My head was positioned as if I was looking forward, but really my eyes were strained to the right to look at Jeff as he drove and talked. I loved the way he looked. I loved his beautiful hands operating the steering wheel. I resisted the urge to take my seatbelt off so I could lean over to kiss his beautiful cheeks, smooth, olive-skinned and glowing. I was shocked at how handsome I found him. He was 15 years older than me. I used to tell myself I would not date an older guy. I loved guys with lots of hair. His hair was like a number two buzz cut, He didn't have much of it left, but it suited him. I loved the way he looked. We stopped at an outdoor cafe. Everyone in Melbourne seems to know everyone from Melbourne. We often tend to bump into each other when we head out of town. Not today. Something mystical was in the air. I felt it. The two of us sat opposite each other on a wooden table with a wooden bench seating. We had ordered fish and chips, but who knows if we even tasted them. Both of us were rugged up in black leather jackets. I can't recall the conversation. Words were not important on this day. A deep connection was happening. We were tuning into each other. We were listening to the sounds of each other's voices. Jeff would say, I love the sound of your voice. I laughed and said, I love the sound of your laugh. If Jeff could have tuned in to my internal conversation, he would have heard me say, He's so beautiful to look at. His smile is so welcoming and friendly and genuine. Look at the gap between his teeth. It suits him so much. I heard somewhere that people who have a gap between their front teeth come into good fortune. I continued to chat away with myself in this fashion. You get the picture, right? 
We shared many things. I told Jeff I couldn't wait to have children. He told me that he got married young and had two beautiful boys from his first marriage 20 years ago. After the boys were born, he had had a vasectomy, which meant he couldn't have any more children. He told me he'd just recently ended a relationship with a woman he really loved. But she wanted children. He felt it was unfair to stay with her knowing that she wanted children. She should be with someone who she could have a family with. I wasn't registering the fact that he couldn't or wouldn't have children. I shared that I always dreamt of being a mother. I knew it was my destiny. At this point in our conversation, Jeff reached across for my hand and said, I can't believe I'm saying this. I could have children with you. Being in love is mysterious. I learned love is not bound to the body. It has the capacity to linger and nurture for always. From the moment I met Jeff, we danced, laughed, played and worked together. The day we got married was one of the sweetest days of my life. We looked at the morning sky. I asked Jeff what he thought the sky was telling us. I loved that Jeff took this question of mine seriously. He noted that there were looming dark clouds to one side of the sky and to the other was the glorious golden sun rising. He said, The sky is telling us that we will have dark moments in our life. However, the sun will always rise and shine. It will be up to us to turn in the direction of the light and be guided by it. Jeff and I went on to have two children. Life then stood still when Jeff died soon after our daughter was born. My first walk without him was around the botanical gardens. I took one step at a time with my eyes downcast. I heard myself speak. I said, Look to the top of the trees. Look to the top of the trees. In doing so, lifting my head, my whole body shifted into a new posture. I stood tall, looking out, not just in. My chest opened, and in this way, I slowly lifted myself back into life. I said to myself, You are left living. Live your life well. Love has survived. We are looking for the Blue Lagoon. The instructions I found on the internet misrepresented the distance between the car park and the lagoon. The landmarks were listed as if they arrived in quick succession, but they are actually separated by a small age in which my youngest daughter quietly but insistently asks for biscuits. I have a complicated relationship with biscuits. I can eat whole packets of them without pausing for breath. I blame it on my school. At the beginning of term, we stood outside the green door and waved to our parents. We would see them next in about six weeks. 
Then we went through the door and there were biscuits in a giant Tupperware pot and we were allowed to take four. I was seven. In this moment, my youngest daughter is nine and her sister is 11. In the last nine years, I have learned the hard way to always travel with snacks. She doesn't do well without snacks. I offer her an oat cake. It's a test. If she's really hungry, she'll eat it. If she's just bored hungry, she won't. The Blue Lagoon we're looking for is not the one in Fiji, made famous by Brooke Shields in the 1980 film of the same name. This one is in Wales. It's in an old slate mine. There is something in the rock that makes the water ultra blue. On the first Sunday of term, we just took the biscuits and went upstairs to unpack. But on every other Sunday, we would watch a film. It was projected onto the white wall of the library. I didn't realise it at the time, but they had a knack for showing us deeply unsuitable films. I guess it was pre-internet and they couldn't just check out a trailer online, but still there must have been some kind of age guidance and they were clearly ignoring it. We watched Towering Inferno about people dying in a burning building, the Medusa touch about people dying in a plane, Missing about people dying in Argentina and being buried in walls, and then Jaws. Jaws scared me so much that for years it felt like a memory rather than a film. It became a knot in me that my character grew around, and one that still now makes it hard for me to swim in any kind of open water. The oatcakes are gone, and hope is fading, but just then we find the last landmark. It's this arch in the rock. We walk through it into a tunnel. It's about eight foot high and two metres wide. There are still the remains of rails on the floor from when the tunnel was used for rolling carts of slate out. It takes about half a minute to walk through the tunnel and then we emerge into what feels like a ruined cathedral built by a Welsh giantess. It is one of those moments when nature requires you to stop in your tracks. I'm not sure what kind of person could emerge from that tunnel and carry on walking. The walls are high, sheer, grey, jagged. Slate, I guess. I'm no geologist. If for any reason the eight foot by two metre tunnel collapsed behind us, then we would need ropes and climbing equipment to get out of here. And there in the middle is the Blue Lagoon. On the far side, the water goes right up to the cliffs. And on this side, you can pick your way over the rocks and walk to either end where there are small beaches. On one of the beaches, there is litter and evidence of a fire. I'm guessing druids or teenagers. My daughters are called Remy and Greta and they want to get in the water. Apparently it's bottomless. The idea of something bottomless makes me want to lie on the ground. My daughters are hopping with excitement and getting changed into their swimming costumes. The blue is extraordinary, but all I can think about is the prehistoric shark that lives in this bottomless lagoon. One eye is white with cataracts, but the other is still black. The sun is shining, so it will be able to see our outlines from below. Greta is first in. She is standing on this rock shelf in about half a foot of water, Two steps more and the bottom drops away. She turns over her shoulder. She wants me to come and look at these tiny fish that are darting around her legs. I can see them from where I'm standing on the bank. They're about an inch long. 
however many of these the shark eats, it will never feel really full. Come on, Daddy. When she was younger, less than two, she stood up in the bath and reached out to me because she wanted to get out. Then she slipped and fell backwards. I ran to pick her up. She was fully under the water, facing up, eyes open wide. She looked like a chubby baby version of that pre-Raphaelite drowned Ophelia painting. I didn't think that at the time. I was panicking. So was she. I picked her up and she spluttered and then she cried with all of her body. I thought then, like I did when she was first born, I can't do this. In this moment, she is taller and more steady on her feet. She is walking forwards without fear. She steps off the shelf and now she is swimming. The coldness of the water takes her breath away and the acoustic of this place means I can hear her shallow breaths clearly as she swims away from me. Remy follows. They are like ducklings paddling frantically. Only ducklings normally swim behind rather than away from the mother duck. I would pay a great deal of money right now to not have to get into this water. My body is full of adrenaline. I'm in fight or flight mode. I know how ridiculous it sounds, but I have to get in and I have to get in right now to protect my children from this massive imaginary shark. The shark senses our movement in the water. Apparently with great whites, you want to try and not look like a seal. I've spent a great deal of time watching YouTube videos on this subject, more so than is reasonable for someone who lives in a pretty much shark-free country. But fear is not something to be reasoned with. My daughters look exactly like seals. Remy even has a shaved head. The panic is using up the oxygen in my blood. Something about gills. Stick your hand in their gills or poke it in the eye with your diving knife. I don't have a diving knife. It's bottomless. There is no bottom beneath me, just water, endless water and darkness and a shark moving up towards us. It's got the skin of a dinosaur and I can't reason with it. The fish are too small. It's just so hungry. At every moment, I expect to see one of my children's heads vanish beneath the water. The shark is close, its ancient brain contemplating which of these two silhouettes to devour. It doesn't consider what that would do to my life. Remy and Greta don't know about the shark. Or rather, they know there is no shark. And they start singing a song, a made-up song about swimming. And they keep singing it. And the song must confuse the non-existent shark because it doesn't try to eat any of us. And we make it to the other side and we climb out. And Remy, she wants to swim across again. And again. And again because she knows nothing is really bottomless, because she knows that sharks aren't all bad, and because she knows that I will follow her. I will follow her. I wasn't followed. I didn't have to look back to know that. The biscuits were supposed to distract me from that realization. The green door would close, the bottom of my stomach would fall away, and I would step into this bone-numbingly cold water and start to swim. To be clear, I never got eaten. At the end of each term or half-term, I climbed out, 
My parents were there to collect me. There were no obvious wounds. My limbs were all there. I was the same, just colder. We sit drying in the sun where the druids and teenagers gathered. I cannot think of anywhere I'd rather be right now. Before we go home, I want to swim the length of the lagoon one more time. I get in to start my journey, and I haven't gone far before I hear the splashes and singing of my children. They are following me. I loved revisiting these stories. Thanks, Lizzie, Hermani, and Ben for letting us delight in your work. Ben Duke is a performer and choreographer and the artistic director of the UK-based dance theatre company Lost Dog. You can check out more of his work over at lostdogdance.co.uk. And Lizzie Hamer is an author and story hunter and regional creative director at Octagon. You can check out more of her work over at lizziehamer.com. We've got a one-off storytelling as therapy masterclass coming up at Small Giants Academy. That's on Wednesday, October 20 from 5 to 8pm Australian Eastern Daylight Savings Time. And it's via Zoom with me. You can pre-register your interest now via smallgiants.com.au forward slash masterclasses. Thanks to our partners, Stone and Wood, for teaming up with us on this episode. They use beer as a force for good. You can check them out at stoneandwood.com.au. And thanks to the guys at Cheshire Audio and Yaga for their ongoing editing prowess. This episode of the podcast was made on the lands of many First Nations across Australia. I want to pay my respects to the traditional owners and elders for their custodianship and acknowledge that storytelling has taken place on these lands for many thousands of years to make sense of our relationships to one another, ourselves, and the earth. Thanks for your company, and I'll see you next time on the Dumbo Feather Podcast. Thank you.